Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Priya David Clemens in Fermina Kim. Coming up on Forum. At a young age, kids start to believe that being fat is bad. This belief, maybe unsurprisingly, doesn't make them healthier. Instead, it makes them more susceptible to bullying. Helping our kids eat well, exercise, and have a good relationship with their bodies hinges on how we talk with them about fatness. That's according to Virginia Soul Smith, a health journalist and author of the new book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. She joins us next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Priya David Clemens in Fermina Kim. Diet culture permeates our society and it's impacting our kids. Children as young as three learn to associate being fat with negative traits. And anti fat bias can be found in the doctor's office, in the classroom, and on the sports fields. In her new book, Fat Talk Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, author Virginia Soul Smith argues we need to take a new approach to being fat, because the current stigmas aren't making our kids any healthier. She is here with us today to explain why she thinks it's okay to use the word fat and how we can raise our kids to be healthy in this diet culture. Welcome to Forum, Virginia Soul Smith. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So let's start by talking about the words we use to describe fatness. You are much more comfortable, I think, with using the word fat than most of us are. But you actually say it's important to take away the stigma, take away the power that negative associations have with that word fat. Tell us why you think that's the right language to use and what other words we should be using. Yeah, this is a tricky thing. And, you know, it's definitely something everybody has to work through for themselves. The word fat has been weaponized against so many of us, particularly folks who grew up as kids in bigger bodies. So it's totally understandable that when we first hear it, we have that knee jerk like, oh, no, oh, no, I can't say it out loud kind of feeling about it. But the problem is when your child says something to you, like, look at that fat lady in the grocery store and you rush in and you say, don't say fat, that's not nice. You immediately teach them that fat is not a good way to be. And that's how we perpetuate anti-fat bias. 
So by reclaiming the word as a neutral body descriptor, as no different than saying someone's hair color or their eye color or whether they're short or tall, we start to take away those negative connotations and make it just another good way to have a body. You yourself use the word to describe your own body. You call yourself small fat. Yes, that's because so I sit at the the lower end of the fatness spectrum. I wear plus sizes, but I can find my sizes online. I can fit into airplane seats in public spaces. There are lots of folks who identify with mid fat or super fat. Infinity fat is also a popular term. And all those terms are meant to recognize that the bigger you are, the more oppression you face in our culture because of your body size. So I would rather call myself small fat than a euphemism like chubby or curvy or fluffy because Mm. I want to show that I am not afraid of fatness, that I identify that way, that I'm proud to be that, but also recognize that I don't experience the same kind of struggles that other folks do in bigger bodies because I do also benefit from what we call thin privilege, the fact that the world is built for smaller bodies. Yeah, so delve into that a little bit. What does that mean, thin privilege? Yeah, so thin privilege is if you can easily fit into public spaces. You don't worry when you go to a restaurant or a movie theater or an airplane that your body will be welcome there, that you will fit. It means that when you go to the doctor, you can say, no, I don't want to get on the scale. And they'll probably say, okay, because they're not that interested in your weight to begin with. It means you can find your clothes. You know, the the thinner you are, you can find your clothes in in person stores. Someone like me, I can't really shop in person, but I can find lots of options online. Um, But you can find clothes for your body, which is not true the bigger you get. Um, It also means if you have thin privilege, you don't expect to be harassed and stigmatized for your body just walking down the street. The fatter you are, the less safe it feels to be out for a jog, to be in a gym, to be in a swimming pool. You know, all of these ways that thin people can move through the world because they're seeing their body size reinforced all around them. That's not available to folks in bigger bodies. You know, you're making an argument in a way that being fat should be considered neutral, that it's not better or worse than being thin, that all of us just have the bodies that we have. And you're not alone. You're a part of a growing movement that has been pushing back against diet culture and a focus on thinness. But you're definitely fighting an uphill battle here. You know, our culture draws a straight line between weight and health. If you're thin, you're healthy, you're desirable. If you're fat, you're not healthy. And that does seem to be one of the most powerful arguments we hear in favor of being thin, that being fat is bad for your health. How do you respond to that? Well, there's two pieces to this. The first thing we need to say is we actually need to separate the health conversation out because what we're arguing for is equal treatment of people regardless of body size. And that should also mean equal treatment regardless of health status, right? discrimination, like it's not any better to say like, well, you're unhealthy, so you deserve to be harassed on the street or Mm -hmm. you deserve not to have clothes that fit you. Like, how is that okay? So in some ways, the health argument is a red herring. It kind of distracts us from the real issue here. Mm. But it is true that we have all been told for decades and decades that the, the larger your body size, the less healthy you will be. 
That is a miscommunication of what the research really shows. We don't have causal data linking poor health outcomes with increased body size. We have a strong correlating relationship, a correlation between these things, but we don't know that it's the larger body size that causes the health problems. Very often when we start to drill further into the research, we see that folks in bigger bodies also earn less money, they have a harder time accessing healthcare, they may come from other marginalized groups, um, people of color, other communities where, you know, access to food and fitness spaces and healthcare and all of the things that are really essential resources for achieving health, for maintaining health, are less available to them. So it's not really about body size. Often it is about the fact that if you are fat, it is much more difficult for you to receive safe and equitable health care. And of course, that's going to have a negative outcome on your health. You point to former first ladies, uh, Michelle Obama's campaign to eat healthy and to move as an example of that sort of anti-fat bias. Tell us a little bit about what you saw as the blind spots in that campaign. I mean, what I so wish that campaign had done, and I want to be clear, that campaign did do a lot of great things. They were able to really improve school lunches and to make free school lunch and breakfast available to many more children, and that was extremely valuable. But I so wish it had been a campaign to end childhood hunger, which at that point was affecting about one in four kids, and it was higher a higher rate than the childhood obesity rate at the time, um, and that they had instead focused on poverty and inequities and helping, ki helping kids have more food to eat. Because what they did instead was they focused on exercise and eating healthy, all of which is fine and great, but with the goal of preventing childhood obesity. And as soon as you start using that rhetoric, you're saying to every big kid in the class, your body is a problem to solve. And that only stigmatized, I mean, so many kids who grew up during those years who experienced the way schools communicated that message, who, you know, saw Michelle Obama dancing with Big Bird, doing all these different, going on The Biggest Loser, which was a reality TV show where fat folks were forced to lose unsafe amounts of weight in a very short and unsafe time period. That was not about health. That was not about making anyone healthier. That was about entertainment. And so unfortunately, the Let's Move campaign became quite complicit with a lot of the anti-fat messaging that we're still dealing with today. You also point out that as a black woman, she herself was the target of anti-fat bias. Oh, absolutely. I mean, anti-fatness and anti-Black racism are inextricably linked. This goes back to the end of slavery, um, when our body ideals and beauty ideals really centered in on a thin white body. And that was a way of upholding social hierarchies and social power. And so Absolutely. Michelle Obama has experienced a level of vitriol. I don't, you know, myself as someone with white privilege has never had to deal with. And it is really worth saying that the way she was treated for her body, the way her kids have been treated for their bodies is unacceptable on every level. And I also wish that that there had been more of a discussion of that and that that had fueled a conversation about how do we make this world safer for kids in all bodies? Because that's really what we need to be talking about. So how much of the idea of making fat neutral is about saying, let's take that stigma out of the conversation so that our kids can have healthy relationships with their bodies? And, you know, 
P.S. on the side, maybe they're going to lose some of this weight because we're taking that stigma away. And how much of it is saying, let's neutralize it so we can just have whatever bodies we have and not worry about fatness or obesity? Well, I'm definitely in the second half of that. Um, It is true that often when folks stop dieting and start feeding their bodies according to their own hunger and fullness cues, some folks' weight goes down in that process. Some folks' weight goes up. Some folks' weight doesn't change. But I don't think it serves anyone to keep an ulterior motive of thinness because when you do that, you are only reinforcing anti-fat bias. It's really hard to say that you want to dismantle anti-fat bias, you want to stop this kind of oppression against fat people, and also you're still hoping everybody's a little bit thinner at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, That feels really, really sticky to me. And so I think it is much more useful and much more health promoting if we say, look, we can talk about concerns about future diabetes risk. We can talk about concerns about health heart, about heart health. We can talk about long-term health concerns, absolutely. And we can say, well, if we're worried about these things for our kids, eating disorder prevention in childhood is one of the best first steps we can take towards reducing their risk of those long-term health outcomes down the road. And that absolutely means taking weight out of every conversation. It means talking about how bodies move and how we feed our bodies best without ever making it about the project of thinness, with just making it about what feels good in our bodies. That is health-promoting. We're starting to get some viewer comments in here, and one of our listeners writes, what about BMI? So the question is, what's wrong with using body mass index or BMI as an indicator of health? So the body mass index was developed in the 19th century by a Flemish statistician, not a doctor, not a medical expert or a health expert in any way. And he set out to measure what he called the size of the average man. So we're talking about white men in Belgium in the 19th century. That is not any of us today. So this formula of calculating what is an average body size is not particularly relevant to the United States in 2023 when we are a much more diverse population. We have multiple genders. We have different ethnicities. Um, Yeah, it just isn't a useful measure, but it's still what the medical center, what the medical system is centered on. Okay. Well, we're going to come back and pick up on that in just a moment. We've been talking with Virginia Soul Smith, whose latest book is Fat Talk Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. You are listening to KQED Forum, and you can email us your questions or hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. This is Forum. We're going to have much more for you with Virginia Soul Smith after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Priya David Clemens in for Mina Kim. This hour, we're talking about how to talk to our children and ourselves about fatness. We're joined by Virginia Soulsmith, whose latest book is Fat Talk Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. You can also check out her newsletter, Burnt Toast, on Substack. We want to ask you how do you talk with your kids about body image and weight? What concerns do you have about the ways in which our culture talks about fatness and thinness? You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org, find us on social media at KQED Forum, or you can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Virginia, often the size of our kids is attributing to our parenting. It's a source of great stress for parents with kids who are asking, is it my fault that my kid is heavy? Should I restrict what they eat? Should I let them eat whatever they want in the hopes that they will find their own equilibrium? What do you say about this? It's absolutely true. Parents face tremendous stigma around their kids' body size because we're still really stuck in the misconception that body size is just a matter of willpower, even though we have decades of research showing that's not the case. The body size is largely determined by genetics and by social determinants of health, environmental factors that you really have no control over. And how you eat and how much you move is just a tiny piece of the puzzle. But That's not the message that we're getting, and so parents really struggle. And what's important to remember is childhood experiences of dieting and weight stigma are the top predictor of future eating disorder risks. So as much as you may be experiencing pressure to restrict your child's intake, to get them moving as much as possible, and to really make their weight a project, you are really risking their long-term health and well-being in incredibly serious ways when you go down that path. A better approach is to think about how can I support my child and, you know, if you have more than one kid and they're not all in the same body size, you want this to be uniform across your household, how can we as a family be coming together and experiencing joy and connection around food and giving our kids some freedom around food so that they can trust their bodies and how can I teach them to value that body autonomy first and foremost and then think about making their lives, their world a safer place for their body. So what does that mean on a practical level? Does that mean as parents go ahead, buy Cheetos as well as a bag of salad? Does it mean put the sugar in front of your kids as well as proteins that we might think are healthier? How do you navigate that? It does mean a little bit of that. And I know that's probably sounding really scary to a lot of folks because we've all been told for so long that there are all these bad foods. And, you you know, if you have that bag of Cheetos in the house, you'll never stop eating it. And, you know, you won't eat it all till it's gone and all that kind of stuff. But what the research shows, there's some really cool studies where when they tell kids you have to finish your soup in order to get dessert, 
The kids who are told that like the soup less and eat less of it and are much more fixated on the dessert than the kids who they say, here's the soup. When you're done with the soup, you can get dessert. You decide how much, go for it, you know, whatever works. Those kids end up liking the soup more, eating more of it. And yeah, they're happy about dessert too, but they're not fixated on it in that sort of unhealthy compulsive way that gets parents so anxious. So when you have foods around of all types, you have, you know, the quote treat foods, you have vegetables, and you're offering these things in a more neutral way, you will find that kids naturally do gravitate to a lot of different food groups. Of course, they have their favorites. We all have our favorite foods. There's nothing wrong with that. But they can enjoy those foods in a less fraught way when we're not demonizing and restricting them. So it doesn't mean that there's no structure at all. A model I really like is called division of responsibility, and that says that parents are in charge of what foods are offered at each meal. But again, keeping in mind that you're going to offer all the foods your kids like, as well as the stuff you're hoping they learn to like. But parents are also in charge of when food is eaten and where meals take place. So you're giving a structure to the day of when we eat. But when it's time to eat, you leave your child entirely in charge of how much they eat of what you've offered and even which foods they eat from what's on the table. Hmm. We have a comment here from Bill uh, who talks about a compassionate parent that he had. He wrote, when I was in fourth grade, I was too chubby to fit into my older two brothers' hand-me-downs. I went on a solo shopping trip with my mom, which was unusual, given five kids and one car. We got two new school outfits with, quote, husky pants. We then went to Bergeson's ice cream, and I got a delicious hot fudge sundae. The message from my mom was clear. I might have been pleasingly plump in her words, but I still got dessert and snacks. I outgrew that extra weight and was normal weight throughout school and college. I am chubby again now. My mom's kindness and love for me has stayed with me these 50 plus years. Is that the sort of story that you hear and that resonates with you, uh, that the sort of power of love in these situations? Absolutely. It sounds like Bill's mom made him feel safe in his body. And that's what we're really going for here. You know, rather than parents panicking and feeling like, well, and I, and I don't want to demonize parents who do panic and put their kids on diets because it's coming from a good place. You're thinking, I want to make life easier for my kid. I don't want them to be bullied. I don't want them to experience shame and stigma. But again, we're, we're solving the problem the wrong way because then we're telling our kids, you are the problem and we're going to try to control you. Instead of saying to them, it's really unfair that the world treats fat people this way. I've got your back. I want you to feel good in your clothes. I want you to enjoy the foods you love. We're going to figure this out together and I'm here to support you. You write in your book about a story in a family that had a literal safe that they would put Oreo cookies into because they were worried that they would all just disappear too fast and lead to the kids eating just too much sugar. Tell us a bit more about that story and how it played out. Yeah, that's an amazing family who I was really privileged to get to interview multiple times over you know the course of reporting the book. And so I really saw them evolve and work through this in a pretty incredible way. And yeah, when I first started interviewing them, they had locked up the Oreos and all of the treat foods in a safe in the parents' bedroom because they had one child who they had found sneaking food and taking a lot of food into her room. And they thought, well, we just don't want her to do that. Um, so we're going to put it all away. 
but it didn't solve the sneaking. I mean, this kid was, I think, 12 years old when we were doing this. Like, she found ways to get the foods that she wanted, understandably. That's how kids respond to that kind of restriction. And then on the flip side, her younger sister responded to the restriction by becoming even more restrictive, which is the other scary outcome. So she started weighing herself before and after meals. She started trying to eat only salad, engaging in other behaviors that were really, you know, disturbing red flags for a nine-year-old. And that was a real wake-up call to the parents to say, wait a second, we have been approaching this with way too much, way too many rules, too much restriction, and we can see with both our kids it's not serving them. And so we've got to, we've got to step back. They got rid of the safe. They, you know, started giving the kids allowance that they could take to Walmart and Walgreens and buy their own treat foods with and enjoy. And the family's in a much stronger place as a result. It's not easy. These things leave scars that take a lot of work and healing, but... I think the kids feel much more hurt now in the house, which is important. Virginia, we're getting some comments in asking for clarification. Are you saying that being fat is actually healthy? Are you advocating that it's fine if people are fat because it's also a healthy lifestyle? Well, what I'm saying is that body size is not a lifestyle. Body size is largely determined by genetics and by factors outside of your control. So we can all eat and exercise in exactly the same way, and some of us are still going to be fat. And so that's really important to hold on to. I'm also saying that not everybody who's in a bigger body is unhealthy, just like not every thin person is healthy. Health is a really complicated, nuanced topic. It is involved, you know, again, genetics play a huge role, your family history, other factors in your life that have nothing to do with your body size play a big role in whether you are, quote, healthy or not. I mean, just think about how you would even define health. It's not just what you eat and how you exercise and what you weigh. It's much more nuanced. It's how you sleep. It's your stress. It's your mental health. So what I'm arguing for is we need to stop defining health solely through BMI or through a number on the scale. We need to understand that health is its own complicated picture, which is determined by lots of things, not just what we weigh. And even when people are unhealthy and bigger bodies, they still don't deserve to be discriminated against. Mm. All right, let's go to the phones. And Gordon from Sacramento, you're on the line. Yes, good morning. Yeah, I'm, you know, uh, a grandfather and have four daughters and 10 grandchildren. And, uh, there are a myriad of issues that you have to address and you know, weight or lack of weight. I've got, I've got grandkids that are too light, you know, so diet and exercise and all these different things are, are big juggling factors. But my, my thought when I heard you earlier was, you know, we have the right to parent our, you know, people in our family, and we need to do it in a loving way. But we have no right to parent somebody that we see on the street. Um, we may have a thought, and we need to work on our own thinking so that we don't judge, you know, the people that we see on the street but uh, and, and the people who are friends and such. But, yeah, by supporting people and loving them, you know, you can – help them as much as they want it. But, you know, if I've learned anything as a grandfather is that you you can offer help, but you can't give it every time you want it, you know, because then you become obsessed and controlling and, you know, you're 
just unhealthy. Gordon, thank you so much. I mean, I think you're speaking to that spirit of non-judgmentalism, of letting people live the lives that they're living, knowing that you don't know all of the struggles um, and the joys of their life. Virginia, what are your thoughts on Gordon's comments? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I think what's happening right now is so often for fat folks, when they're walking down the street, when we go into a, a workout space, the doctor's office, there are so many knee-jerk assumptions made about our bodies and then about our health, about our eating habits, about our morality, about our work ethic. I mean, there's so many negative connotations that we associate with fatness that are coming up when people see someone in a bigger body. And that is if you are looking at fat people and you are having those assumptions, that is your own work to do, to let go of them. That person doesn't need your opinion. They don't need your unsolicited workout advice or comments on what's in their grocery cart. I mean, this is all commonplace happening every day. So I like what Gordon's saying. You don't need to parent everybody you see on the street. And in fact, that's not really good parenting to be leading with judgment. There are some comments also coming in about how other countries are different than America and that maybe that is better. So Tara writes, obesity is linked to many problems such as asthma, heart disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, etc. Americans are the fattest and unhealthiest in first world countries. Isn't there a danger to normalizing obesity? And Beth writes, obesity is serious. And I want to know why as a society we do not stress common sense, whole food lifestyles. France, Sweden and other countries don't have childhood obesity issues and they don't have snacks, eating between meals or the all day grazing lifestyle that so many Americans have. Is there something wrong with how we eat in America? Um, I think we're making a few assumptions there that I would push back on a little bit. Um, fat people live in every country in the world. Uh, Anti-fatness exists in every country in the world. And people get eating disorders in every country in the world. So there isn't the stark difference that they're talking about. A country like France is really interesting because there is a really high level of anti-fat bias there. And so often the French lifestyle gets praised because French people are thought to be so much thinner, but it also means that anyone living in a bigger body there is dealing with an onslaught of oppression all the time because of their body size. And there's a lot of disordered eating in the way that thinness is, you know, is pursued in French culture. So this is not to demonize France, a big fan of the country, love a croissant, but hmm. it's important to say, you know what, it's always a lot more nuanced than that. And let's be careful what we're celebrating elsewhere while we're demonizing what's happening here. All right. Let's go to Phil from Burlingame. Phil, thanks for calling into Forum this morning. Hi. Great, great show. So, you know, growing up, I had a single parent, a mom, and she was obese and always, you know, struggled with her weight. Um, and I was just like a, you know, rail. She could, couldn't feed me. And, and, you know, my view on this is we're talking about fat which is a symptom. It's really the relationship between people and food. So, you know, there are people with body dysmorphia that, you know, are anorexic and, you know, don't eat and get too skinny. And then, you know, my mom used food for comfort and there were psychological elements, I think, that were tied into it. You know, so I, th I think the issue is how people relate to food. And then the second part is how functional is your body? You know, if, if, if you're so fat that, you know, you can't get up or can't get down or your knees start to break, isn't that, a, you know, another way to look at it as well? 
Phil, thanks for your call. And Virginia Solsmith, this is some of the question that is being asked in different ways, right? Whether it's a question of obesity leading to other markers of concerns, health, disease, diabetes, or as Phil is just saying here, what about physical movement? You know, this is where you feel the message that you are sharing that it's okay to have a body of any size seems to get real pushback uh, from many in our in our society. Yeah, there's a couple of things I want to speak to there. One, I think he's absolutely right that this is um, that the relationship with food is the bigger issue than weight. But I do want to push back and say, you know, you can be anorexic and in a fat body. You can be binge eating in a thin body. We don't eating disorders do not have a body type. They happen in all body sizes. And there's a huge issue with folks in larger bodies not getting treated properly for a restrictive eating disorder because everyone applauds them when they start restricting their food intake because we're so sure that thinness is healthier. And so right there you can start to see that our definition of thinner always equals health is really deserving people's health. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it about this mobility issue is, of course, I think there are lots of folks in bigger bodies who would like improved mobility, and that is valid. And I am not here to tell anyone what to do with their individual body and their individual healthcare protocols. But I am here to talk about the fact that if we built this world to support bodies of all abilities, this would be less of an issue. If we made spaces more accessible, people would be able to access the world regardless of their body and ability, and that would benefit everybody. Able-bodiedness is temporary for all of us, right? We're all going to age. We're all going to need help getting places. So this is something that benefits all of us. And to sort of imply that, well, if you have mobility issues, you've got to lose the weight, there's some blame in there that I want to push back on because, again, body size is not a matter of willpower. It's not a matter of making the right decisions or just trying harder. It is determined by many factors outside of people's control, and we need to support people where they are in the bodies they have and ask them what their health goals are, not decide for them. Let's go to a couple more comments here. Rebecca writes, I think awareness is also in order, particularly the awareness that buying foods in bulk and the proliferation of fast food restaurants and the readily available Uh, Readily availability of snack foods and high-calorie drinks are a more recent phenomenon in the average American household, which can contribute to an unhealthy diet and weight. For all of you out there who'd like to join the conversation, we're talking with Virginia Soul-Smith, whose latest book is Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. We want to know what messages were you given as a child about your weight or body size? Were those messages helpful or harmful? How do you communicate with your children about body size and weight? How do you manage family dinners? You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. And you can also give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. This is Forum. We're going to have more after this break.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with Virginia Soul Smith about her latest book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. Virginia, let's dive into what happens in the household when it comes to division of labor. Let's assume we're talking about two-parent household. Is there a gender difference in how parents approach teaching their children about food and in how they approach just the kids' perception of what fatness is, if it's okay or if it's not. There really can be, and it's super interesting. I mean, if we're talking about heterosexual households, the most common scenario is that women have been socialized to be more of the caregiver and handle more of the meal prep, the meal planning, the labor of cooking and grocery shopping and all of that. And that often means that they're the ones putting more thought into how do we want to tackle picky eating and, you know, are we eating enough vegetables and all those kinds of questions, which means they may be, they may be more likely to have encountered some concepts like intuitive eating, division of responsibility, which we've discussed already, and be thinking about how to make the family table a place where bodies are celebrated, where everybody's hunger is honored, et cetera. And then on the flip side, men are not socialized to take that role, to do that research, to be as active in the minutia of feeding families. But men are also socialized to have really strong opinions about food and exercise and bodies. I think some of the calls and comments we're getting today are showing that. Mm-hmm. Um, men, and the reality is that men have their own diet culture. We think of dieting often as a very feminine thing. We think of Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig, and we think this is just women wanting to be thin and pretty for vanity reasons. But men, especially in the last, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so, have gotten really into intermittent fasting, into macro counting, paleo, CrossFit. There are a lot of diets marketed towards men. And they're given a kind of gravitas that the diets marketed to women don't generally get. They don't Hmm. get dismissed as crash diets and fluffy in the same way. And so that means that a dad may be eating in a really restrictive way, according to one of these diets. He might be training for an ultramarathon or doing some sort of aggressive, you know, outdoor exercise, what have you. And that's celebrated in the family. And if that dad is struggling with an eating disorder or with disordered eating, which is common among men and not talked about nearly enough, then we're reinforcing that we're, and we're using that as an example that his kids is going, are going to follow. Yeah, I think there's some examples of that, right? Jack Dorsey, for example, yeah. is famous for eating just one meal a day. 
Yeah. And, you know, when that story came out, it was sort of like, oh, how quirky, but he's such a brilliant tech guru and that's how they are. Whereas when, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow talks about her quirky diet habits, people are much quicker to be like, this is an eating disorder and how dare she. And I'm not here to champion the eating habits of Gwyneth Paltrow, who I do think is selling a fairly restrictive lifestyle. But there is a double standard in how we talk about the way men and women eat. Mm. And Jack Dorsey is, of course, Twitter CEO, as a reminder. Uh, Let's go to the phones. Margo from Fair Oaks, you're on the line with us. Thanks for calling, Margo. Hey there. I just wanted to make a quick comment that, um, for me, one of the things I was really kind of surprised by during the pandemic was the fact that um, on every engagement I had, every time I was engaged with uh, uh, my doctors, no one mentioned anything about um, diet or exercise when we knew pretty early on that the cytokine storm and the highest risk from the highest risk from uh, of death due to comorbidities with COVID was from obesity. So we knew that early on. Um, I managed on my own during the pandemic uh, to lose about 30 pounds. And um, but it was not at all with the support of the medical professionals. So I wanted to say that I thought that was really I think that medical professionals have not (laughs) not yet found constructive ways to engage around this, but that they absolutely have a responsibility and that it's bordering on malpractice that they didn't ever offer me information about how I can protect myself from covid by losing weight. I just wanted to share that. Interesting. Margo, thank you for calling. I appreciate it. Let's talk about the relationship between healthcare professionals and weight loss or this concern about fatness. You, Virginia, have said, hey, if you go into the doctor's office and they tell you to step on a scale, you don't have to do that. What are your thoughts about the relationships here? Yeah, I'm interested by Margot's experience because I certainly heard from lots of readers during the pandemic who were experiencing doctors pushing weight loss on them. I think that's a really common experience if you show up in a doctor's office in a bigger body, even if you've gone in for a sinus infection or an elbow injury, they're likely to say you should be dieting. So it's definitely the knee-jerk position of most healthcare experiences for fat folks, and it's not serving people's health because sustainable and effective weight loss is not available to the vast majority of people and carries this increased risk of disordered eating and eating disorders, as we've been talking about. So I'm actually pleased that her doctors weren't pushing weight loss on her at that time. I don't think that would have been the most health-promoting suggestion when we were in a pandemic where we all had to focus on keeping ourselves safe. And the reality is nobody could lose 30 pounds fast enough to not get COVID when they went to the grocery store that day. So it wouldn't have been a particularly useful strategy. How do you suggest best advocating for yourself and for your kids when you go to the doctor? So there are times where weight is relevant to the health conversation with kids when we're talking about car seat sizing, medication dosing. For adults, when you undergo general anesthesia, they often need to know your weight. There are other medications that are weight dependent. It's not that weight never needs to be a part of the conversation. It's that it doesn't serve us when it's the starting point, because we know that healthcare providers bring high levels of anti-fat bias into the exam room with them, and that makes that place less safe for folks in bigger bodies. So what I encourage folks to do is to think about how useful it will be to them to get on the scale or not. And if it doesn't feel helpful to you, you have the right to decline it 
or at least to say, what do you need to, you know, what are we using the weight for today and decide whether or not it's medically relevant. I have found when I don't get on the scale, my doctors have to ask me much more detailed questions about how I'm eating and exercising and managing stress. And we talk about my lifestyle habits in a much more health-promoting way because we can have a deeper conversation. They're not just focusing on that number. That's not going to be true for everybody. If folks in bigger bodies than me often find that even if they don't get on the scale, the doctors look at them and start prescribing weight loss. But it's important to know that it's your right to opt out of that and that it can sometimes lead to a rich experience. And with kids, I really encourage parents to ask pediatricians to have conversations about weight and growth charts outside of the room, away from the kids, because it really doesn't help kids to hear doctors harping on those numbers when kids can do nothing about them and are just going to be hearing your body is a problem. When it comes to healthcare interventions, we hear about bariatric weight loss surgeries. We're hearing about new drugs like Ozempic. What is your perspective on those medical interventions? So again, I want to be really clear that I'm not here to tell anyone what to do with their own personal health and their own personal health goals. There are times where those interventions make sense for folks because it may be necessary to lose weight in order to access medical care you really need. The fertility industry, for example, has high has BMI cutoffs often where they won't give you fertility treatment unless you're below a certain weight. So a lot of women end up feeling like they have no choice but to lose weight in order to pursue infertility treatment. This is the reality we're working with. That being said, Bariatric surgery and the new drugs like Ozempic are expensive, they are life-altering, they are not a silver bullet, people do not lose weight permanently for, you know, it's not a one and done, you take the drug and you lose the weight. We're talking about a medication you have to be on for a lifetime that carries side effects and the long-term impact of which we don't yet know. So those are really complicated decisions that right now I think a lot of people are feeling forced into instead of being able to really evaluate what's right for them. Hmm. A listener has written in, I wanted to tell you about how keeping kids from being fat can be generational. I remember my sister and I, at 11 and 12 years old, were kept from eating no more than what was required to keep us alive. This was because our grandmother bribed our mother with a trip to Hawaii if she could get us to lose weight. We were not obese and grew into teenage years, damaged but thin. We also have a lot of calls right now coming in. Let's go to Nancy in Los Gatos. Nancy, you're on the line with us here at Forum. Hi, um, I am the mother of two teenage girls and um, a tween boy. And when it comes to my teenage girls, I feel like I was pretty, um, that I knew what to expect when it, in terms of body image and weight issues and stuff, um, that I could relate to that. But I was very surprised when my almost 10-year-old son came to me and said that he needed to um, develop a six-pack and that he didn't want to be fat. And I really did not know how to respond to that. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Uh, thank you, Nancy, for that call. This is exactly what you're saying in many ways, Virginia, that children at a young age are very clear on what uh, is good and what is bad in bodies from a social perspective that you are trying to shift. You've heard these sorts of stories before, I'm assuming. 
Absolutely. And my heart breaks every time because no kid should feel that at war with their body and especially at only nine years old. Um, And I've often heard the stories younger than that. I think this is a great example, too, of what we were just talking about in terms of, you know, these issues impact men and boys as well. Very often we think only thin white girls get eating disorders and nothing could be further from the truth. So it's really important that we think about dismantling anti-fat bias to support all our kids. And when that kind of question comes up, I think it's very necessary to validate your child's feelings. It's so hard the way the world can make us feel about your body, about our bodies, that they aren't good enough, but emphasize that you don't see their body as anything that needs to change. You think they're great the way they are, and how can you support them? We're also getting comments coming in from people who want to thank you. Anne-Marie writes, I want to thank the guest first for advocating on behalf of fat folks and responding respectfully to the fat phobic comments that are rolling in. When I was younger, my mom would often go on diets and encourage my sister and I to go on them as well. I've been self-conscious about my weight for decades, and I'm trying to unlearn all of the fat phobia I've internalized my whole life. Even though I am the fattest and happiest I've ever been, many people in my life and complete strangers have decided to weigh in on my health without knowing me or my health journey at all. As a reminder, if you'd like to join the conversation, you can call us now on forum 866-733-6786. You can also find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. We're talking with Virginia Soul Smith, whose latest book is Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. This has been a fascinating conversation. We're going to continue here. You are listening to Forum. I'm Priya David Clemens, in for Mina Kim. All right. Going back to the phones now, let's go to Sarah. Sarah in Oakland. You're on the line. Hello. Hi, Sarah. Hi. I just wanted to thank the author for her book and for her comments on the show. I feel like I'm repeating things other people have said, but I have two teenage daughters who both developed eating disorders during the pandemic and really changed my view of eating and fat in our society gained weight with them as they have recovered, and I'm learning that I have a lot of things to myself about my prejudices in this culture. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sarah. Miriam in San Leandro, uh, thank you for joining us here on Forum this morning. Hi. Um, well, again, Virginia, your work is so significant for my work and my parenting. But I wanted to ask, um, as I'm a Latinx parenting educator, fat positive, I want to you know, there's a, just this intersection around how we talk about fat bodies and fat phobia and weight stigma in communities of color, in BIPOC communities. So I'd love to hear, like, your thoughts about how we adapt these tools when we are at the intersection of other stigma, of other, you know, discrimination. And for me, especially for the Latinx community, because that's my focus, that, you know, this is really, these are tools that are so, so important for all of our kids, you know. So I'd love to hear more about that. Thanks. Thanks, Miriam. Appreciate your call. Virginia. Yeah, this is such a great question. I mean, Miriam's absolutely right. These issues intersect. And for communities of color, what's often happening is there is the community's own beliefs about body size, sometimes which are more flexible, often which are not. And then there's the more dominant white narrative being layered over that, of course, because they're exposed to all the media where that's the the dominant conversation. 
And a person whose work I really love on this is Jessica Wilson, who wrote a book, It's Always Been Ours, rewriting the story of black women's bodies. That might be a really interesting read. Um, She talks a lot about how when people of color start dieting and engaging in disordered eating, it's often not about body love at all. They love their bodies just fine. It's about trying to achieve safety in a world where their bodies don't feel safe, which I think makes a lot of sense. And that really needs to change the way we approach these conversations because we need to talk very clearly about the oppression that they're facing and the way the world is asking them to change their bodies in order to be safe. All right. And Karen from Santa Rosa, thank you for joining us this morning. You want to talk about junk food in schools? Yeah. Um, So my kid goes to a low-income school district in Santa Rosa, and um, they like uh, there's enough kids who are low-income that they qualify for free lunch. The lunches are kind of questionable on the health stuff, but um, whenever there's a birthday, kids bring in junk food. Sometimes the teacher provides junk food. And when they're even be right before standardized tests, the teachers will give them candy as a stimulant. Hmm. Um, and, like, and I also want to add there's the caffeine question, too. Like they're mixing sugar and caffeine with these drinks like Prime that 10-year-olds are drinking. Right. A very popular drink right now. Absolutely. Virginia Soul-Smith, thoughts about junk food and sugar in schools? Well, again, this is where I really want to encourage us to think away from labels like good food, bad food, junk food, if we take a less restrictive approach, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but if we take a less restrictive approach to these foods, they lose a lot of their power. They don't have the negative impacts that folks are worried about. You know, there's a lot of great research debunking the reality of the sugar high. People think that kids eat a lot of sugar and get really hyper and crazy, and it just isn't borne out in the science. What's more likely happening is kids are reacting to how parents talk about sugar. Oh, you're having so many cupcakes, you're going to be wild later. You know, we can't believe you're going crazy with the candy. Like, that tells kids what we're expecting them to do, and so then they do it. So that's one piece of it. And just one other thing I'd say too about processed foods in general being in schools is remember that you know the school day is hard. Kids need to be fed and they need to be they need to have foods that they can eat. And often what's predictable and comforting and feels safe to eat, especially for very selective eaters, is a processed food item. So something like an uncrustable actually is a really great lunch choice if it means that child eats something at lunch and then is fueled to get through the rest of their day. Virginia, I'd like to give you an opportunity to just share a final thought here as we're wrapping up the show. I think the big shift I wish we could make is to get a little less focused on the details of nutrition, on the details of, oh, is it healthy or not? I understand why so many questions come up around those topics. They're big, complicated topics. But if we can start to understand that what we're really talking about here is body autonomy, kids feeling safe in their bodies and feeling like they have control over their bodies, and that that is important not just for their relationship with food and their body image, but with their but in terms of overall life skills. I want my kids being able to trust themselves first and foremost. And if that means they're eating fewer bites of broccoli at the dinner table, that is okay with me. Virginia, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. A listener writes in, I agree nobody should be shamed for their size, but if you want to change your body, go for it. We have had some fantastic calls and comments today. Thanks for joining us here on Forum. We've been talking with Virginia Soulsmith about her new book, Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. 
Thank you to all our listeners for their calls and for their comments. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Priya David Clemens, in for Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.